You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Last night, my family went to the Atlanta Botanical Gardens and got to see the Christmas lights there and we had a good time. Before we um, before we went to see those lights, we stopped at, at another place in Atlanta and, and grabbed a bite to eat, and, uh, and I had to use the restroom, okay? People have to do that. And, uh, and so I did that, and Piper, uh, my four-year-old, wanted to go with me, and so she went into the bathroom, and she saw one of the stalls uh, had, you know, it was kind of roped off, taped off, and she said, Dad, uh, what, what's the X for? You know, why is there an X here? Uh, because she is all about letters and numbers and everything right there. She doesn't see taped off. She sees the letter X. And so I explained to her, as we have been talking about for many months, uh, what COVID-19 is. And so we talked about it yet again there. And so I thought uh, this morning, uh, having not really talked about it for some time, having not, having not really addressed it uh, as it pertains to us and our church, our local family here uh, in McDonough, uh, I think the effects of it have been everywhere. They're noticeable. Uh, even in our very own church this week and last, I got all kinds of texts and phone calls from people in our body that have had exposures, people that are at home with COVID. Uh, others have family members right now in the hospital that are dealing with uh, serious complications from COVID. And I just wanted to say, as we begin this morning, just by word of exhortation, um, that we would continue to be just a gracious people. Uh, we, we have been, and I'm proud of us for that, and I just ask that we would continue to walk in graciousness and honor for one another. So uh, some of the ways that that's going to continue to look, we obviously have some more spaced out chairs here. Now, it is full this morning. Uh, thank the Lord. Praise the Lord uh, that you're here. Thank you that you are coming and gathering for worship. Uh, we'll continue to space out chairs. We have decided to have two Christmas Eve services. We've never done that before. It's always a packed out time. Um, and so this year we've decided that we're going to have a 5 and 7 p.m. option. And, uh, and we've been announcing that. But we would love for you, if you can, to register for that, southpoint.org slash calendar. Uh, leadership is going to continue to to wear masks. Those outward-facing serve teams are going to continue to wear masks. And would you just hear my heart? Would you hear the heart of the pastors at South Point? We have no desire at all uh, to make a political statement by wearing masks. That is not the desire of our heart. We are not doing that by any means. Uh, that, that, that's not what's going on. It's not a statement of uh, politics, but rather of deference in this moment. Man, we, the church, are an alternative community. Uh, we, don't, we don't act like the world. We don't think like the world thinks. We don't do what the world does because the world does it. But we do have an opportunity um, to, to walk forward in this way. And so I would just say, would we continue to be gracious towards one another as, as we walk during this time? So, so thank you for that. And would you um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1? Matthew chapter 1. Have you, have you ever walked into a situation and you think there must be more to this story? Uh, like other people know exactly what's going on in this moment, but I'm not getting the full picture. Like I've, I've parachuted in and something is happening around me and I don't, 
I'm not getting it. Well, yesterday morning before our pastors met, I swung by Mrs. Winters down the street and, uh, and was trying to get some biscuits, okay? Um, now, that was going to be a, a really good part of our morning. I was, I was going to really enjoy some biscuits. And so I drive up to the speaker and I ask for five chicken biscuits with cheese. That's really important to Michael Powell. Five chicken biscuits with cheese. And then I was also asking for, for several sausage biscuits with cheese. And, uh, and so as I order this, uh, there, there's a nice lady that comes over the speaker, and she talks for about one second, and then I start hearing all this yelling in the background, perhaps yelling at the lady that's taking my order. I don't exactly know what's going on, but I wanted to say, hey, if, uh, you know, if that's a problem, like, you know me, I don't want to be an imposition to you. Like, it, I know it's early. I don't know what to do. It's really awkward. And she speaks up and she says, okay, you know, that's going to be a while. And I was like, oh, okay, um, no problem. Do you have any biscuits ready? Are, are, there, are there any biscuits ready at, at this time? She says, yes. I said, okay, well, I'll just take eight biscuits of whatever you have. It's fine. Uh, if, if we don't get our cheese, we're going to be okay. I'll talk to the guy that really wanted it, and, and we'll, be, we'll, we'll be okay. But then the yelling starts back again, like behind her. And I'm just like, this is, this is incredibly awkward, to which finally uh, the lady feels like she's coming in close at the speaker to me. And she's like, hey, um, the reason why I don't want to take, uh, why, why I don't seem to be wanting to take your order this morning is because we have a really large catering order, and there's just two of us. And, and at this point, I really don't know what to say. You know, like, should I pray with her? You know, I, I, I don't know. And I, I say, like, should I say, should I just go to Bojangles? Because that's normally where I go anyways. I just thought it would be something different today. Uh, and then she says, okay, no, we have some chicken and steak. I said, that's great. So I pull around, I get my biscuits, and I, I take them to all the guys. I'm like, hey, here's a bag of biscuits. I do not know what's in here, okay, but, but enjoy. And uh, there, there should be something in there. Now, we're going to be walking through much of 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 this morning as we continue with our Women of Advent series. So feel free to go ahead and, and find that also in the Bible. But also, as we did last week, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 1. Uh, that's, that's where the premise for our entire series, Women of Advent, is coming from, uh, the genealogical line or account of Jesus. So let's, let's look at Matthew chapter 1 first, and if you're able, wherever you are, if you're here physically with us today, if you're joining with us online, would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word? Matthew chapter 1. I told you to find it in your Bible, and I had not done the same. Okay, thank you for your deference. Matthew chapter 1. Sorry, I'm going to get there. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. It says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife 
of Uriah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, We read it quickly, but did you notice anything uh, particular about verse 6 that's different from the rest of those verses, particularly uh, when it dealt with the women in this passage? Anything in particular? The, The other women that are mentioned are explicitly named here in the text, except we have the mother of Solomon listed as the what? the wife of Uriah. And so we think there must be more to this story. There there must be more here. Why are we not getting the name of the mother of Solomon? And thankfully, there is more to this story. So let's go ahead and find that out in 2 Samuel. We're done in Matthew this morning, as, as far as I can remember. And so if you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, similar to last week, I'm just going to walk us through these two chapters. And really, this the story of David and Bathsheba, and then I'm going to work to draw some application at the end. Our time will be divided this morning into three scenes. The first is the pain. The second is the prophet. As many of you know what's going to happen in this story, and then finally, we'll see the promise of God. And I want us to see, overarching, big picture, that Jesus is coming to justify the, the unjust. That Jesus is coming to justify the unjust. First, we see the pain in chapter 11. Look there, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time... When kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained, that's important, at Jerusalem. Now, here's David, the shepherd boy who had now become king. He was the brave warrior who we all know defeated Goliath. And he's the one in which God calls him a man after his own heart. He's successful. David is powerful. He has favor with God. And here in verse 1, David is lazy. David's lazy. At a time when kings go with their people to battle, David does not. David stays home. He neglects his own people for his own pleasure. While his people were at work ensuring the safety and the well-being of their nation, David essentially wanted to sit at home and watch Netflix if he had it and play video games if he had them. Perhaps he thinks he's done enough for his people. I don't know. That he deserves some time off. Perhaps you know it already, brothers and sisters, but the moment that you start living for yourself is also the moment that you stop living for God and obeying what God wants you to do, obeying what God has for your life. And so David, he just hangs back. The text says, again, look there in the scriptures, verse 2, it happened, something happened, late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now, we all face temptation. Every one of us. Jesus himself faced temptation. David found himself right here in this story, in the middle of temptation, and all of the pieces were in place for him to give in to that temptation. And maybe, maybe you know all those pieces all too well. Like, that you find yourself having particular responsibilities that you decide to neglect in order to do whatever you want to do. 
And whatever you want to do starts to get boring itself. Video games get old after a while. You can only scroll through your Instagram feed so many times. You can only work on that old car for so long. You name it, whatever the time waster is that you find in your life. At some point, that too gets boring. David was on his couch, and he just got bored. He sees this very attractive woman from afar. His rooftop gives him a tremendous view of the city of Jerusalem, and he has this decision to make, a decision that you and I are very familiar with. And am I, am I going to squelch the temptation? Am I going to give in to what's going on in front of me, or am I going to do what the Lord would have me to do, to put the thought away, or am I going to go further with it? James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 give us the process. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives brings forth death. Now David makes a decision. Verse 3. Here's his decision. And David sent and inquired about the woman. The wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, those sound just like names to us, but later in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we see that Eliam and Uriah are some of David's mighty men, like the top 30 of all of David's warriors. Now, I want you to picture just for a moment that you're driving down a long road, a long straight road, we don't have many of those here, but I think about the Midwest where you can drive and you can see for miles and miles ahead of you. Imagine that you're on a two-lane road driving one particular way and you can see for miles and miles ahead, but you get distracted. You've been driving for a long time. You start looking down at your phone and then all of a sudden you, you go to the right. You're just veering off to the right just a little bit, and you hear, I don't know what they're called, but those little noisy things on the side of the road, eh, 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 and then you automatically, you, you course correct all the way over to the left. David should have heard this in that moment. He should have heard those names, and he should have stopped. He should have thought, hey, there is this temptation that I'm seeing right in front of my eyes. I, I know who this woman is. Man, uh, these are people that are incredibly close to me. He should have heard it and snapped out of it. I, oh, thank you. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I can't believe that I was about to sin against God. I can't believe that I was about to destroy a family that I love so deeply. But verse 4 tells us otherwise. So David sent messengers and took her. Now, the Hebrew literally says there that he seized or he took her captive and she came to him and he lay with her. Now, we have this parenthetical note from the author, a reminder of what she had been doing in the bath. We don't know anything from Bathsheba's perspective, but the text seems to be clear that Bathsheba was attempting to honor the Lord in ritualistic cleansing, while David was dishonoring the Lord in abandoning his duty as king to lead the people of Israel out into battle. Now, that's what happens. And then Bathsheba returns to her house. We don't know what the time lapse is here, but verse 5 says that Bathsheba sent and told David, 
I am pregnant. Now, you ever find yourself caught in sin? Like a, a lie, perhaps. You know that you've lied, and you think for a split second, I can come clean right now. I, I know that I just lied, and I have the ability in this moment to say, no, I've, I've sinned. I can confess. I'll pay for it, but this could be over right this second. And again, you find yourself on that long, narrow road. You've course corrected all the way over to the left, and now you've just hit the light reflectors on the highway. But you're jamming to music. You got your Spotify list blaring, and, and you're just bouncing up in your chair. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're like, I never do that, but maybe you do. And you're just bouncing up and down in your chair. You don't even feel those light reflectors. And in that moment, family, we find ourselves knowing that we've just committed sin, but you quench the work of the Spirit in your heart. And when you do that, what do you do? You tell another lie, don't you? You tell another lie. It gets bigger than it was at the beginning. Verse 6 says, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And man, this story just gets awkward for the readers. Much like the story of Tamar and Judah last week, but David gets to see Uriah, one of his most trusted soldiers, and he actually begins to, to pick up some small talk with Uriah. Hey, hey, Uriah, glad you're back from war. How is Joab doing? How are the people doing? How's the war going? David has a plan. Uriah, verse 8, go down to your house and wash your feet. It's, it's been a long journey. You've worked really hard. Go down to your house and wash your feet. Much like Bathsheba, when the king gives orders, what do you do? You go. Uriah goes, even being followed by a present from the king, the text says. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. The next morning, David gets word that Uriah has done this, and he wants to know why. Uriah is such an honorable man. He says, look, my Lord Joab and all of our people are out camping at night in the middle of a field. And they don't have beds to lay down in. They don't have a wife to go to. They don't have a home to go into. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go and dine with my wife. I'm not going to go home and have relations with my wife. He says, King David, I won't dishonor you by doing such a thing. What an honorable man. And again, it's another moment of mercy for David. He has this great opportunity right now in this moment to stop and turn from his sin. Uriah, you see, this is what I've done. I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against your wife. I've sinned against you. And now your wife is pregnant. David decides that he'll go another way. You stay here today, verse 12, and tomorrow I'll send, I'll send you back, David says to Uriah. So King David, he invites Uriah in. They eat and they drink together and they have a good time that evening. And then Uriah gets drunk. And David is hoping that Uriah is going to be in an alternate enough state that he decides to actually go home, and see his wife, and enjoy time with her. 
He's hoping that Uriah might change his mind, but he just goes to sleep on the king's couch instead. Still not going to his house. The next morning, David writes a letter to Joab and he gives it to Uriah to take it to him. Verse 15, there in the text. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Uriah hands Joab his death note unknowingly. And sure enough, Uriah the Hittite, the text says, dies. You see, Joab, right after this, and David have this back and forth, like coded communication through a servant, getting the word to to one another, but the deed is now done. Uriah is dead. Another sin, more pain, lies upon lies, sin upon sin, suppressing the mercy of God to turn. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. In case the reader was confused on God's heart in the matter, what does the Lord think about this? We, we, we had a, a little bit of wondering to do initially in the story of Judah and Tamar last week, but here it's explicit in the text. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This was not right. This was not good. He had sinned against the Lord. Now, there is some more time between chapters 11 and 12. We don't exactly know how much, but David writes elsewhere about what's going on with him internally during that time. And David has attempted to cover up his sin with more sin. And where did it get him? It got him a murdered wife, a murdered friend, It got him another wife. It got him a child in the womb with another woman. And David writes in Psalm 32, 3 about this time. He said this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You see, David's guilt began to eat him alive. Yes, it was causing him internal pain, but it was getting physical now. He was losing weight. He couldn't sleep. He was shriveling up. He had no energy. He had no strength. And before we move on, friend, we we shouldn't be surprised that sin has physical effects on us. We, We shouldn't be surprised that prolonged unconfession of sin begins to show itself physically. If you're experiencing the effects of unconfessed sin in your life this morning, as we hear that in the text, the Lord your God is giving you mercy right this very minute to repent of your sin and turn to him. Not everyone is made aware of their sin. Some, some have hardened. You may, you may find yourself here this morning. You, you've hardened yourself to sin. Some are callous towards sin and they won't turn to God. Maybe you're here or you're watching today and you find yourself and you don't want anybody else to know, but you find yourself in the midst of sexual sin, much like David. And the lies are getting too much to manage. The deception is exhausting. It affects you. And if you're married, it affects 
your marriage. Even if the sin is yours alone, you're not bearing it alone. It has effects that are reaching outside of your person. It affects your church, whether you believe it or not. And if you're walking around in unconfessed sin, it is detrimental to the body of Christ. And this is a moment of mercy for you. Just mercy. I pray that this would be a day that you turn from your sin, that you confess it, that you go to God, that you go to your wife, that you go to your husband, that you go to your friends, you go to your DNA group, and you walk in the light today. Today is the day of repentance. Walk in the light today. You see, David had been given all of these opportunities, chance after chance, to turn, to turn away from God, to, tur- to turn away from sin and turn towards God. He stop the lies and the deception, but he didn't believe that his sin was as great as it was. More than that, he didn't believe that his God was as great as he is, but he is, and he was, and thankfully, the Lord chastises those whom he loves. And so we move from the pain of chapter 11 to the prophet of chapter 12. You see, David has done wicked things. A woman has been invited into his sinful desires. A man has been killed. His crime was certainly unjust. And thankfully, thankfully, there is one who is coming that is going to justify the unjust. Look at verse 1 with me, chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this scenario. Judah had been told that his daughter-in-law had been sexually immoral, and now she was pregnant. She had committed adultery with another man, and she's now pregnant. And Judah says, what? Burn her. Burn her. She doesn't deserve mercy. She doesn't deserve any grace. Burn her for the deeds that she's done. David, in the same way, is enraged at the powerful man who took the lamb from the poor How could a man like that continue to live, David wondered. Now, in the body of Christ, we're always wondering, how in the world am I supposed to speak the truth in love to my brother and sister in sin? We, we always find ourselves given different personalities that the Lord has given us. Some of you are really good at truth. And you're like, man, I'm just going to speak this, and I don't care at all what happens to the feelings of the person standing in front of me. You're like, yeah, that's me. Some of you are really good at the, the grace, the love part, and, and you really don't care to get around to the truth. We're, we're always wondering, how am I supposed to communicate truth and love to others in the body of Christ? Here is 
one of the finest examples in all of Scripture. Nathan wraps this story up, this story that is one of tremendous love for his brother, with likely the most piercing words that David had ever heard in his life. And he says this, you are the man. And David doesn't take that in the moment to mean, man, that's great. I'm glad I'm the man. That's not a good thing. David, you're the man. You're the powerful man. You're the rich man who took something that was not yours from the poor. And then Nathan, the prophet, delivers the word of the Lord to David. And he says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of King Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives. The house of Israel I gave you. I gave you the house of Judah. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah. You've taken his wife to be yours. And since you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, now therefore, verse 10, the sword, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me. And the Lord continues to list the consequences of the sin of David in that moment. That the child that Bathsheba bore dies. Here you're on that long road again. That long road that you could see miles ahead. You're still distracted. You've course corrected from the right. You've gone to the left. And now you find yourself speeding head on in the opposite direction with a Mack truck coming your way. And here's the deal. If, if you don't turn, if you don't do any course correction, if you don't get back in the right lane, what's going to happen? Soon and sure destruction is going to come your way if you do not turn, if you don't heed the warnings in that moment, if you continue to miss the things that have been going on to say, don't do that, wake up, stop being distracted, do the right thing in this moment. Nathan's prophecy, his word in this moment is David's final plea from God. It's the horn of that huge Mack truck. If you don't wake up now, you're gone, David. You're, you're not going to come back. It's sure destruction. But this time, when he hears the warning of God through his friend Nathan, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't continue to remain in distraction. He doesn't go on to a, an, another. He doesn't veer the opposite direction. No, this time David doesn't defend himself. He says to Nathan in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Course correction. I'm no longer heading toward, toward destruction. I see what is in front of me. I see the destruction that, that has already happened and what is sure to come. I've sinned against the Lord. And the question before us this morning as believers, as family members in the household of God is this, when you find yourself confronted by sin, whether it be as you read the scriptures yourself or a brother or sister or spouse or friend confront you on your sin, are you quick to repent of it? Are, are you quick to, to heed it as, as the horn of the Mack truck or do you just continue to think about it 
nonchalantly, like, I'll be okay for now. I can continue in my sin. It will be okay. It will not lead to my destruction. Do you repent? David's deception has come to an end. He's laid bare before the Lord, and thankfully the story doesn't end here. The prophet reminds us that there is the coming promise. Coming promise of God. Listen, and I don't, I don't say this for pity, but um, that, might, that God might use this tremendous pain in this moment for his glory. Uh, Jeff prayed just a little bit ago for my father-in-law, my wife, um, my mama-in-law, they, they lost last night um, a member of their family, my family. Uh, my wife lost her uncle. My father-in-law lost his only sibling, his brother, uh, just right before 1 a.m. this morning. He died of a massive heart attack as, as he was watching the football game. Well, we, didn't, we didn't expect that to happen. Nobody saw that coming. It was, com- it was completely out of left field. He was, he was 57 years old. And I found out when I woke up at 3 a.m. this morning, I saw that I had 14 missed calls and a text message. And so I ran out of the bedroom. I called my father-in-law. My wife saw that I ran out of the bedroom and that I was making a phone call. And she realized that she had 15 missed calls. And we had missed this for the last couple of hours. So p- please do pray for them as they grieve such a sudden and unexpected loss. But as has I tried to get myself together and pull myself together, uh, thinking about pre- preaching this morning, wrapping up my sermon. Um, I, I was praying for them and reflecting on the sermon and, and what, what's going on in this text and how it might apply to the people of South Point. And I was struck anew by David's comment to David after he admitted that he had sinned against the Lord. Nathan, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, He said this, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, Nathan doesn't mean a physical death there. But the reason that struck me anew in this circumstance, in that moment, was because we have absolutely no idea when this physical body will cease to exist. When when our heart will stop. When something unexpected will happen to us, you have no idea. I pray that it is a long and full life to God's glory here on this earth. But it it might not be as long as you and I hope or expect. And then physical death will be. And so we must be ready and prepared now. He doesn't mean a physical death but a spiritual one, that for those who should choose to remain in their sin and do not repent, they will die. But for those that do, there is life. But how? But how? Because David certainly deserves to die for his sin. We see that. Our culture is so good at identifying particular injustices. And this is certainly one that we could point out. David had another man killed to cover up his very own sin. That is certainly an an injustice. 
Our culture likes to point out particular ones, as I mentioned. God's people should be able to see injustice, point it out. We should be able to seek justice. But listen, God's people, hear me out, should also be the very first ones. We are, in fact, the only ones who are able to extend grace to the most offensive people. Do you hear that? That God's people are able to look at the unjust, the unjust, and say, God's grace is bigger than that. Does your theology allow for the vilest of sinners to receive grace from God? Does your theology call you the vilest of sinners? Just like David, you and I deserve to die as well. We are tremendous sinners, and sin keeps us from a relationship with God, and its wage, the Bible tells us, is what? Death. The question how is answered in the promise that Nathan gives. The Lord also has put away your sin. You see, God is perfect and holy. God is light, as we saw in 1 John, and in him is no darkness at all. He's completely just. He can't and he will not let sin against him slide. Sin is not arbitrary. It must always be dealt with. So how has the Lord... How is Nathan able to communicate on behalf of the Lord that the Lord has indeed put away Nathan David's sin? Now that's where the genealogy that Matthew records in his gospel comes in. Bathsheba gives birth to another son named Solomon. God calls Solomon Jedidiah, meaning beloved of the Lord. And this son would make way for another son. You see, there soon would be a perfect son, one who would be absolutely and perfectly just, one who would walk in righteousness, one who would be tempted and yet never sin, one who would fulfill the commands of God perfectly, one who would never lie, one who would never murder, one who would never commit sexual immorality, one who would be absolutely perfect. And he would be the one who would come and die on a cross. The just has come to justify the unjust. And in the season of Advent, we await his second coming. And he would come and take his bride for himself. God could put away David's sin. We must not miss this in the story he could put away David's sin because he took it off of David and placed it elsewhere. He placed it on his son Christ. Jesus took our sin debt upon himself, that which he did not deserve. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ took our guilt from sin. He bore the shame of our sin. And if the Father has let you know today through conviction by his Holy Spirit, if he's drawing you to himself today, per perhaps you are aware of your sin and have never repented. Do that today that you might not die, but have life everlasting. 
And for those of us who know more guilt because Christ himself has placed it upon him and given you his very righteousness, for those of you who are in Christ, the promise didn't end for you when you first repented for your sins. You need grace today as much now as you did when you first believed. You likely realize it all the more. And so if you find yourself in sin, remember from 1 John chapter 2 that you have an advocate with the Father who is Christ Jesus. Would you repent and continue by faith today? And would we remember all the more that Christ Jesus, who is the just, came to justify the unjust? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in allowing us to read your word, to read your word in a language that we could understand, that we could comprehend, and by your spirit that you've illuminated for us, your children, to read and understand and apply, that you're applying it to our hearts. And God, I pray this morning that we, your people, who find ourselves in and out of dealing with sin, that you would remind us that we have an advocate who is with you, Jesus Christ, who took our shame on the cross, who bore our sin debt and took our guilt and placed it upon himself. You placed it upon his head, and he bore it. He, he, he drank of the bitter cup to its completion, and it is no more. And so we, as your children, revel in that good news this morning. And we thank you for the mercy that you've shown us in Christ Jesus. God, I pray for those in here today that have never repented of their sins and trusted in Christ Jesus, that you might, by your spirit, draw them to yourself, that they might hear the warning like a Mack truck's horn and would turn to Christ by faith. And I pray for the individuals here that are brothers and sisters in the faith that find themselves in the middle of secret sin, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would remind them of your grace and goodness, and that they too would continue in repentance and faith today. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that your church would be built up, that we would be encouraged as we've heard this story. And as we know that your son Christ Jesus has indeed come once, and we long for his second return. And it's in his name that we pray.